Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. Today, we discuss enmeshment based on Jeanette McCurdy's best-selling book, I'm Glad My Mom Died. What can happen when perhaps you're too close? When you think of childhood emotional trauma, one might think of neglect, but the opposite, being too close, can lead to enmeshment trauma. A child can become the parentified child, where the child takes on caring for the parent's emotional needs, such that their parents' lives center around theirs, they are their parents' best friend, their parents' self-worth is hinged on their child's success, and they are guilted when they want less contact. And enmeshment trauma can manifest as being afraid of conflict, difficulty in relationships, low self-esteem while deeply relying on approval of parents, and lack of self-identity such that they do everything to keep others happy and please them. Does this sound like anyone you know? Unfortunately, I wonder if this is more common than not. And who better to discuss this with than our favorite clinical psychologist, Dr. Chris Farenbach. She's been on the show in the past, and I just love her. And if you're loving the podcast, don't forget to give us a great rating, write us a review however you listen to podcasts, and send a favorite episode to your friends. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Chris Barenbach. It's so nice to see you again. Hi, Michelle. Really good to see you, too. And I really mean this when I say this. You're like one of my favorites. It's always a joy to see you. Bless your heart. (laughs) It's always a joy to see you, too. So we're good. Yay! Yay. And thank you for like coming onto the show today because I'm really excited about this topic. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about enmeshment and Jeanette McCurdy's book, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Yes. And I know you read the book because I kept on begging you. What did you think of it? I thought it was a, it's a really good read. She writes a, a very clear, um, reflective story. And she tells the story, um, you know, pretty factually with an appropriate bias, but mm-hmm. she doesn't give anything away until the story, she allows the story to unfold, like, you know, sorting through the relationship with her mother and then that big revelation later on, which I won't, you know, spoiler alert, we'll just skip that. And, um, and, uh, I I think she does a really clear job of describing her relationship with her mother. And, and as she came into realization, she brought lots of insight into that. And she also describes really well, or you get it through the course of the book, how unconscious we are in any relationship when we're children, in particular, the relationship with our mother, because we depend on that person, usually the mother. Well, we tend, we depend on both of our parents for, for um, our survival, basically. And so we can't think in terms of, oh, that behavior seems off, or this is hurting me, because the, the desire to please and to um, make sure you're safe with either your mother, your father, your caregiver is, is a drive, because we need to survive, and children obviously cannot survive on their alone without, alone without their caregivers. And I just love that part of her story. I thought she did a really good job there. And I'm really like um, 
impressed by the fact that she told her story. You know, I think for a lot of people, like talking about about pain is actually very, very difficult or even their Mm -hmm. own pain. Mm -hmm. But sometimes like it's easier to understand oneself if it's presented in a very palatable way, like someone else's story. It's like safe because you kind of know it's not you, it's them that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. But to like follow through and see what they've gone through, it's like a very safe presentation for everyone to read. Well, you know? I I totally agree with that. I thought it was it wasn't a a tell all mm-hmm. because you wrote very appropriately about the, the the painful things in her life and how she managed them, what she made of them, and so it's not some big to do with a lot of sensational, terrible, bad things, but it's just, these are the facts as she wove that all into her story. Yeah. You know, like I first heard the word enmeshment after reading her book Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's so many different terms for what she's been through, like abuse, you know, Mm -hmm. generational trauma, you know, like so many things, but like, is the word enmeshment new or has it always been around? Oh, I think enmeshment's been around for quite a while. Um, that's a really good thing to look up and under look at the term and how that term evolved into how mm-hmm. we understand it today. And um, but it's I think it emerges from psych, um, psychoanalysis, in particular um, related to attachment and how how we attach and how that can go well and how that can be injurious. Yeah, because I think naturally when we think of like childhood trauma or emotional Mm -hmm. trauma, I think we think neglect is a huge component of that picture. But I think enmeshment shows us that, you know, it's the opposite. Sometimes you can be too close that and that can lead to like enmeshment trauma, which is what she describes. Exactly. And there is a there's a form in neglect, a form of neglect mm-hmm. in too much closeness. Yeah. It's kind of like indirect, yeah. but it's there. Right. Well, and the neglect is um, <clears throat> the parent in this case is not really <clears throat> able to see her child mm-hmm. and really hear what's right for her and what she wants because she's creating the mother through her own need, the child in her image and like her own image and likeness or the or what she wanted for herself. Yeah. Which was, I think if you thought about it, ultimately just to be seen and valued. But she made this a story about my daughter has to be an actress and famous and seen and beautiful. And Mm -hmm. I really, really need that. And she clearly needed it much more than Jeanette did. Yeah. Clear, like when it's like when the parent is over-reliant on the child for support. Yes. But then, you know, at the same time, when the parent is over-reliant, oftentimes the child takes on this responsibility while that they're not just supporting their parent, but also their, like, emotional needs and right. well, whole, like, purpose to living almost. Exactly. The parent, uh, the child takes on the role of parent or adult in a certain way, a role that they're not <clears throat> qualified for. And so that becomes, that person can become what is known as the parentified child. Yeah. And the parentified child is the child, let's say, in a, a family where a, a parent is addicted. That child is the one who 
uh, steps over the passed out parent and then thinks to wipe their face off or try to help them get into bed. Mm-hmm. That is the four or five-year-old who's making breakfast for the two-year-old yeah. because the parent isn't available. And children will naturally pick up those things to fill in gaps for their own safety and also trying to take care of their younger siblings. And they need to do it to please the parent because they have to keep the parent safe and pristine and perfect. We have to keep our, we have to keep our parents good because we depend on them if we knew that our needs were, that we really weren't safe, mm-hmm. you know, of course we would collapse. Yeah. And if you're walking on eggshells, there's consequences mm-hmm. when you step on an eggshell. Yes. And I would imagine those children know mm-hmm. that there's like a lot of eggshells around them. But yeah. And you don't know all of the eggshell. It's yeah. kind of trial and error. Yeah. But then the eggshells can be inconsistent. Sometimes you step on an eggshell that's, there's a big explosion and sometimes mm-hmm. it's no big deal. So that would be confusing. The eggshells yeah. are um, not always consistent. Yeah. yeah, you never the know where they all are. Fear component when it's not consistent. Well, that's pretty awful, actually. Yeah, and you don't realize, like, literally, like you're living in like a survival mode because you're a child, you know? Right. Well, and you can't be aware of that. I mean, when you look at Jeanette's book and yeah. her story, um, not to, you know, get into a spoiler alert. Oh no, again, get into it. You know, but yeah. She, um, she thought her mother was her best friend. And that she loved her so dearly. They were so enmeshed that, you know, when her mother died, it was like cutting her arm off. Mm-hmm. And enmeshment is when another person becomes a part of us. We internalize it psychologically and we fuse that person and their needs and our needs and, so, you know, ways to meet that person's needs into our our whole being. I mean, we our reason for living becomes to make sure that person's okay and that I do everything I can to stay in approval or uh, attached. And so Jeanette had had to create an illusion that protected her from seeing how awful her mother, mm-hmm. in what awful ways her mother was using her. And none of that means her mother didn't really love her as well. Mm-hmm. Her mother was very unconscious of... It was just a very maybe deluded definition of love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, yes. like as her mother is like... Mm-hmm essentially selling her you know mm-hmm. really yes did you ever feel like your mother was your best friend growing up I never would have put it that way mm-hmm. but I can admit to having a, a lot of enmeshment with my mother yeah and um working very hard to you know grow up in her image and likeness of me Mm-hmm. That what she wanted for me. And you don't know that's happening. Yeah. I felt really close to my mom until um, later on in adolescence. And then I, you know, began to, and as I did my own work, I became more conscious of the actual void between us. Mm-hmm. How and old were you then? When I started figuring that out? Mm-hmm. I would have to retrospectively go back that I noticed the void um, earlier, early in my teens, but I could, would never have been, like in memory, I can say, oh, that's when it started, but I was not experiencing it mm-hmm. at that time. And then it took like, you know, later in my 20s or early to mid 20s when I was beginning to see that, where's the connect? And, you know, I moved pretty far away from my family just to, 
be able to hear my own voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I felt a great terror, really fear of going home to visit because of that kind of maw of the enmeshment and all that. It just felt very, um, I would lose myself. I would yeah. lose myself. So it was really, it was frightening to go home. And I did choose a place to, you know, a nice place to put myself into exile. Mm-hmm. You know, Bay Area, California. Couldn't, how bad could that be? So pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you yeah. know, it was a place to learn deeply about so many things. Yeah. See, that's the thing that I wonder. And like, you know, I, I really honor you as a clinical psychologist because I frankly love you. But, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like, Sometimes I wonder if the rarity is actually that picture-perfect family. And I wonder if, like, there's much more of this than we think, you know? And clearly Jeanette describes the family, that family unit that was dysfunctional, you know? But I wonder if enmeshment is much more common than that picture-perfect, you know, no-problem kind of family. Or less problems, you know? There's no such thing as a no problem family. And I don't know that that would be a really interesting study to find a, a way to like, I don't know of any enmeshment scale. Like you could Mm -hmm. give people a, a little test or and questionnaire. Nowadays, they, they call it something like ACEs, you know, like yeah. adverse childhood experiences. But that yeah. may not describe enmeshment, but definitely areas of trauma, you know, in a kid's life. Yeah, I think what I could say, and I this is all anecdotal, I think there is maybe some epidemic related to attachment mm-hmm. and how we attach over time to first our family, siblings, parents, and et cetera, and then later in life. And um, I'm trying to think why I would say that. I mean, I live in a rarefied world in my profession. You know, people who are feeling happy and balanced and good don't really want to call me, and nor should they. <laughs> but unless they want to, you know, have fun or something. But, but um, um, I think we're so um, pounded as a culture, and I may be speaking from my own life and what I project, but we're pounded with consumption, consumeristicness, or consumerism. We're pounded by an economy that requires so much doing and doesn't give us time to be truly present and engaged and just being with each other and having the time of day to, you know, be with your kid as they want to wander around downtown for, Mm -hmm. you know, all afternoon. And I think parents are super stressed because we've built this economy that depends on two working, full-time working people in their family. For many, many, many families, I don't know, how many stay-at-home mom families do you know or stay-at-home dad families? Yeah, very rare. Yeah, it's very rare. You have to have a lot of money Mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure. Uh, We're very squeezed. Uh, Never mind COVID and so forth, but... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think there is maybe an epidemic of meaningful attachment. And also, like, the whole definition of family has changed so much over the years, you know? Yes. You know, like, if you rent an apartment, only a certain number of people can live there. Like, yes. It's like, it's like for, you know, anyway, but family, the family unit has gotten much tighter. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily good. Like, people live very far away from their extended families, you know? And oftentimes, you know, sometimes, you know, that 
ability to depend on someone else is not always there, too. Right. Interdependence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, like, just, let's say you didn't have like a great parent, but if you had a great grandmother in the picture yeah. or someone or neighbor else, moms or yeah, neighbor, neighbor moms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like someone to give you some love. I think mm-hmm. that would help a lot. That would be one of the positive experiences in your life, you know, mm-hmm. that hopefully would help with something that I always constantly wonder, like our resilience. Right. I, I agree. And families are, I think, you know, you don't need to study to notice that families are more isolated. Yeah. And that neighborhoods are so much different than, what, you know, boomers grow, grew up with and, you know, Gen Zers too. It's, there's a, a lack of cohesion and meaningful community is harder and harder to find. Like, it, mm-hmm. it or people are more inside more or, you yeah. know, like. Well, it's the, the, you know, metaphor of the gated community. Mm-hmm. I mean, the gated community is really clear. We're here and you're there. But it's true how we relate to each other. Yeah. It's true, though. Like, I could really relate to her. And Mm -hmm. I never imagined enmeshment for myself. Like, the other, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about highly sensitive person. And I never thought that was me. Mm -hmm. But I scored pretty highly, you know. And Uh I was like, what the hell? But then I never imagined even what I went through was enmeshment. You know, Mm -hmm. there's so many, there were so many signs, like, you know, like, I was her best friend at a very early age. So I your mom knew, depended on yeah, you. Yeah, I yeah. knew I had to tell. And she was so lonely. And I mm-hmm. didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. She would constantly ask me how beautiful she is. Oh, wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or she would, growing up, I would always know that she made me. Like, you know, like, as an individual, and Jeanette was describing this too, like, her individual dreams were not possible. Like, she was saying how she loved to write, you know? Yeah. But for her, her mother's definition of success was being an actress. Right. Well, and her mother constantly said, you love to act. Yeah. And she's like, I don't think I like this. <laughs> and she happened to have, you know, talent and everything else to be able to pull it off. And the lack of, I mean, I think in her case, the real clear lack of boundaries were a little bit really shocking to me. You know, mm-hmm. like she was saying like almost up till the age of 16, mm-hmm. her mother would bathe her. And because yeah. she had breast cancer, would touch her to, would, like, I guess, palpate her breasts and her vagina. Right. To make sure that yeah. she didn't have, I mean, I don't know what the purpose was of that, but, you know, obviously there was, she was, con- I don't know if she was concerned about cancer, but it's crazy not even to have privacy in your own damn bathroom. Well, as, as old as she was, I mean, you just start having privacy when you're eight, nine, and ten. Yeah, it's an extreme story. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Like, extreme. I was allowed to go to the bathroom by myself, you know? Right. Yeah, she could hardly go to the bathroom by herself. Yeah, like, my parents were not aware I had pubic hair, you know? <laughs> Nor did they... <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Nor did they ever ask, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. wow. It's pretty horrifying. You know, and that kind of invasiveness, um, like, it was very clear with that palpate, looking for breast cancer, and, you know, touching her so intimately, but there's... There's emotional invasion, too, mm-hmm. that children will pick up because children, when we're children, we don't have thick enough filters and enough information to see what's coming and um, protect ourselves against it. So a parent can emotionally vibe their child in very invasive ways um, that can be even harder to get a hold of because it's so vague. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, 
<clears throat> like I remember talking to someone about um, who came to see me and who had been sexually abused. So, well, it was nothing. I was only fondled. I was like, oh, that's something. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's in a gray area. So you're like, that's harder in a way than something you can really say, oh, yeah, that was bad. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the scale kind of hurts when it really all hurts, if it's on yeah. on the scale, you know, if it deserves to be on there, you know? Yeah, it, it's that. And it's also people will um, downplay mm-hmm. what happened to them as if there's bigger problems in the world, or that doesn't really count. And some of that is caretaking other people. Yeah. It's diminishing oneself. And then there's the whole gray area. Well, he didn't rape me, it's, so it's not abuse, mm-hmm. but it is. Yeah, I think even the concept of not making a fuss. Yes. Not perfect. You know, That's exactly like right. Placating people. Yes. That's like one thing I really had to think about because I realized that before I got angry like Chris, mm-hmm. I was always pleasant and nice. Mm-hmm. I never caused problems. Like I was trained well in my environment. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I would be I would never ever be the troublemaker. Mhm. Even to the point where, like, I had no idea what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely, like, a learned trait, like, from enmeshment. Oh, that's all protection. Yeah. You and can't... then you don't have a sense of yourself either. Exactly. Because you're disconnected from your instincts. Yeah. Because you're always, like, on survival mode. Be like, how are they feeling? How are they looking? Like, I do have, like, I still have, like, hyper antennas mm-hmm. where I feel it. Yes. You know, I can't not respond if someone's crying when I could be like, just let them cry. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to react. Right. You don't have to caretake them. <laughs> yeah. Right. But the, going back to instincts, if you always have your radar focused outward or your spotlight focused outlet, outward on your environment to make sure you're going to be safe, you can't possibly listen to what you're truly feeling. Mm-hmm. That's why Jeanette would think that of course I love acting. It took her a long time to hear that voice of what I like and what I don't like. What's true for me. Yeah. And instincts really are about, on a psychological level, connected with what's true for you. What's, you know, core truth. And it could be something as simple as, you know, I always say yes to Chinese food and I really hate it. I mean, people discover that in their 30s and 40s. <laughs> So finally I said, let's do Mexican. And no one <laughs> and no one killed me. <laughs> it's funny. I think we all struggle with the sense of self, though, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Well, that must part, be so yes. much harder when you're enmeshed. It's so confusing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's part of that's life's journey is identity development. Mm-hmm. And in- for her to like, I think, and sometimes I wonder, like in the book, like what saved Jeanette, you know, and I think she saved herself, but her mother also died. You know, she died, right? Mm -hmm. So the actual, like, continuing trauma stopped, but she has a trauma of what she's lived through. Yes. To process, you know? However, I will say, just in terms of understanding trauma, the person could die. Mm Mm-hmm. It could be gone from your life. So no more calendar days with that person. But our memory goes very deep into our development. And sometimes there's parts of ourselves that are very attached to things, both things from the past and what we've made of them in our current age. And so I will just say some of the kids, 
some of the internal parts of ourselves don't realize that the mother has died because mm-hmm. the memories continue. But that is that can be. Does that make sense? You mean that they're perpetuating themselves? Yes, because for in memory, mm-hmm. just because someone dies today, it doesn't mean we're not connected to the things that happened to us at an earlier age. Yeah, and we haven't worked them out in terms of memory, which is a body, mind, spirit process. It's not just about you know working with memories. You're, your body remembers everything that happened mm-hmm. to you. It's all encoded there. Yeah. It's right? like in your, it's like almost cellular. Like yes. you absorb all of it. Yes. Exactly. The energy of that moment. Yes. Or accumulatively all the moments. Right. Good and bad. Exactly. The question I have is then, if there's not always like just bad moments, but there's some good too. Mm-hmm. Why do we hold on to the bad so much, do you think? That is an excellent question. And it's because we remember dangerous things so that we can protect against them. And so someone came up with a formula. I don't know how they decided this, Mm -hmm. but for every negative thought or a dwelling on a, a terrible thing, you need 10 positive things to balance that memory in your brain. Who knows if those numbers are accurate, but what is true is that when we feel in danger, when we get activated by something in the present that pulls on a memory from the past that still lives in us, we're going to always go into our defenses because we're built to survive. So we don't really default into positive very naturally, Mm -hmm. but we can learn. That's In fact, that's a really important part of recovering from trauma is your brain wants you to go to this negative, painful, freaked out place. And you're like, no, I think I'm going to go to my safe place or my, my people say they're happy place or they're, or I'm going to redirect my, um, my behavior in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I sitting here with this person who's castigating me? I think I'm going to say, I have an appointment. I need to go and go hang out with someone I know really loves me. Yeah. Or who I can be real with. But if that, like, really scary or, you know, memories continuing to play in your mind, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do we ignore it or do we somehow try to understand, do we need to try to understand it and translate it? You know, like, what's the process, what's the true process to healing? That's what I wonder, you know? Well, I wish there was an easy (laughs) road or one clear road. You know, there's there's a process of healing trauma, which one of the first things is to notice yourself, to notice I'm feeling freaked out Uh and I don't know why. Like feeling your emotions and understanding what that is. Why am I running out of this room? Why am I feeling this urge to run out of this room just because that person said this to that other person? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really, I'm really agitated. I'm really anxious. So you notice that. Now, it takes, that's not so easy, that kind of self-awareness, because if you're traumatized, you're not connected to your felt sense of yourself. It, it's all in your head, and it's really hard to notice that. And so a lot of work is just beginning to notice. Notice anything with your senses, like, what do I see? Spend time with color. How vivid is that? Go into a room and see how many things you can name. And there are people who can't do that. Like, I I ask people in my office, what do you see around here? I see a desk, a a bookcase, and you're sitting in your chair. 
I got lots of stuff in my office. And so we try to go further with that. But there's even that sense of beginning to name even basic feelings like, mm -hmm. I'm thirsty. Oh, I could get a drink of water. It just that's a practice. Or I'm stuck in traffic. I'm really feeling irritated. Oh, I think I'll put on this show on the radio that would relax me. Mm -hmm. So it's just noticing those basic things. And you can notice the bigger feelings. And so when we, once we get, we're more able to notice ourselves. And this is a practice that would be applicable to everybody. In particular, our culture, we live so much in our left doing brain versus our experiential right brain, where we're just in the being place. And everyone's running too fast, as we've already discussed. And then there's um, going into more feelings. And when you're in the, the reactive feeling, the most important thing to do is soothe. That, and the research does support that. Mm -hmm. Soothe first. Then you can figure it out. What's an appropriate way to soothe ourselves then? Okay, so I have a little formula, and other people have, and I thought I made it up, but then I read it someplace else. So <laughs> I, clearly somebody. You're that cool. Yeah, I'm that. <laughs> like, yeah, You're we got that. And who knew, you know? So it's like, when you notice that you're running around in circles with your hair on fire, or just freaking out or upset, just stop when you can. I mean, and you know, you can freak out for days. Yeah. It might take you a few <clears throat> days to notice that you're agitated, upset, mm -hmm. depressed, or whatever. But finally you get it, and you're like, oh, stop. Many people before that will use alcohol, drugs, go shopping, eat, what have you, because that'll stop mm -hmm. the agitation. But that's just... Um, Temporary. Yeah, it's very temporary. And then um, after you stop, you're still upset, but then you can soothe yourself. Mm -hmm. And then when you're soothed, you'll be able to solve the problem from your central self. Um, so when we're upset, our brain is mm -hmm. going like this. Notice a jaggedy line with mm -hmm. big highs and lows. And we're in a balanced place. Our brain is going more regular mm -hmm amplitude like getting to a place of calm however you can yes so one way i like to think about this just pretend you're you're a parent and your kid comes home from school hysterical mm -hmm. um really really upset and you're like we need you you help your child stop you've mm -hmm. done that a thousand times if not a million times he just says, sometimes stop. it begins with what the fuck but yeah <laughs> well it might it might yeah that might be one way or snap out of it, you know. <laughs> but you stop. And then you say, what happened? Tell yeah. me all about it. Just tell me the story. Like you have to be calm to listen. Right. So that's soothing. And then maybe it's time for milk and cookies. Mm -hmm. A good use of food. Yeah. You know, it's not to solve the feeling. It's to accompany the calmness mm -hmm. that you're going through. And then you were able to say to your kid, what do you think we should do about this? What you're not going to do, you're not going to do as the child tells you the story, very upset about being bullied at school or whatever it is. We're going to talk to the principal right away. We're going to talk to those kids' mm -hmm. parents. Freak your kid out. <laughs> so then you go from the agitation to the more soothing. And then you can say, what do you think we should do about this? And so then you're, you're not possessed by the energy of the upset that, the triggering, if you will, of the trauma, now more accurately described as activation mm -hmm. of the trauma. Um, 
And once you've got it here, you can step outside of the issue because it's not inhabiting you. And then you can say, what do you think we should do about this? And then as a parent, of course, you would help your child come up with reasonable solutions. Like, should we talk to the principal, you know, and see what we can do about this? Or should we go to school and see how it goes tomorrow? Or what would you like? What do you think is the best idea? So you create a solution together and, mm-hmm. and take it to the next step. But you really can't have an emergency with someone else when they're having an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like almost like you minimize your capabilities when you do that. Absolutely. Well, right, because you're not capable because you're understandably really upset, like the child maybe hurt because they got punched, offended, betrayed. Their sense of being safe at school with their friends is crushed for the moment. Mm-hmm. You feel scared. Yeah. And you're in emergency mode. You're in fight, fight, or freeze. You have to go from fight, fight, or freeze back to um, the parasympathetic ner- mm-hmm. nervous system. And, just, and when you're there, then you can be reasonable. Mm-hmm. When you're freaked out, you're just in right brain. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> and even her process, Jeanette's process, like... The situation stopped and maybe mm-hmm. like it takes some time or it took time for her to remove herself from that situation. Uh, that's exactly to right. To process it. Yeah. Or, you know, and a lot of us ignore it. But by writing the book, book she's telling us that she processed it. Yes, you're absolutely right. I want to um, sub- emphasize that point. You need to get away from the trauma. Mm-hmm. Where the bad stuff is happening. Yeah. So. um, To have some reprieve to think. Right. But, you know, you can't be in trauma, in a Mm -hmm. highly traumatized situation and heal from it. Yeah. Like if you're enmeshed, going back to the enmeshment is not going to allow you to think. Mm -hmm. But to go away, like if you have a safe parent, go you, you know, but a lot of us don't. But to get away from the enmeshment. Right. Oh, yeah, to see what that go. calm feels like. And I have to say, even my own experience, that's when I started thinking when my life became calm. Right. When I yes. blocked my mother for, like, periods of time. Like, right. I never felt that calmness. Right. Well, because you're um, removing yourself from the stimulus. Mm-hmm. Like, and... it's not normal for someone to call you 10 times a day. No. You know? <laughs> not so much. Or, Even yeah. text you 10 times a day. Or her definition of me mm-hmm. is doesn't have to be my definition of me, mm-hmm. you know, to like know that. And mm-hmm. I feel like it took me a while. Like, you know, she maybe she was in her late 20s. I would think I was in my mid 30s when I had that realization. It can take. Yeah, that that's I true. could not like my mother. Yeah. Oh, that it was know? OK not to like your mother. Yeah, I actually had no idea Yeah. until I was maybe. I had my first child, and yeah. it was around 34 that I hit my rock bottom with her. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt so terrible, and I was asking myself, do I need to continue what she's already doing to me? You know, am I really worth nothing, or am I worth something? It was, like, something for me to think about as I'm, like, driving my beat-up Honda Civic, you know, yeah. at the time. Like, I remember being on the road. And, like, the moment when she keeps on telling you, she leaves, like, four-minute messages. And I was so enmeshed. There'd be ten four-minute messages from the day, and I would listen to all of them. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? 
Like, what are you doing? You listen to it. You know what she's going to say. And that you listen to all of it. Like, I didn't know it was optional to not listen to it. I believe that. That is is very true because there's a sort of brainwashing that goes on. Yeah. You're so dependent. Yeah. Filial piety. Like, I want to throw up now every time I hear that. That's another word, right? <laughs> People say enmeshment. And filial piety, I hope, you know, I think it's wonderful to respect everyone, you know, or your elders. But that's what that that feeds enmeshment too, filial piety, which Asians love, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, I grew up with uh, honor your father and your mother. And that never was fully explained because authoritarian structures. Catholicism is a, yeah. an increasingly authoritarian structure as are every religion I'm aware of right now. They become that way. And the other th- side of it is, you know, honor your father and your mother and they must know that they don't own you mm-hmm. and that they are not you and they cannot use your life and abuse you. There's two sides to filial Or body. living vicariously through you. Oh, yeah. That's so horrible. Yeah, that's really hard. So horrible, you yeah. know? And I think she really brought an interesting point up. Like, her mother wanted her to become an actress, right? Yes. Beloved by the public, you know? Yes. And, but then, you know, she wanted this dream for herself, right? Vicariously through her daughter. But then once her daughter achieved that, it didn't make her mother happy. It actually made her jealous. Right. And you know what? I experienced that too. Like, it was my mother's dream that one of us became a doctor, mm. like my father. Like, there was no other career I could consider. Mm. And once I achieved that, I was, like, wondering what those emotions were that coming out of my mother. You know, like, I was newly married. Mm. I... I became an attending. And though she was not happy for me. Mm. Like, when I term it, it really was jealousy. And you don't ever think that's possible between a parent and a child. Mm. But it happens. Oh, absolutely, it happens. And then, you know, you're, like, shocked that despite everything you've been through, that that could be an emotion that can exist between... Like immediate blood relatives, right? Well, and then you're a, um, you know, when you become what they want you to become, you're a kind of like a, a bracelet on their arm, a beautiful bracelet. Mm-hmm. Now I can see this, but then you want two of those bracelets, yeah, or three. <clears throat> but you know, one thing you're getting at is the challenge of healthy attachment, um, which is not easy because, um. Yeah, there's a song that says your children come to, come through you, not to you. Mm-hmm. But that's a hard thing to grasp. Yeah, to so like know your children. Right. Are they're supposed to fly away? They're yeah. supposed to grow and right. become them. You know, like what's about? It's also about differentiation. Like even from the first moment of birth, your child, the infant, is trying to find you, is trying to relate to you from their own separate self. Mm-hmm. We used to think about symbiosis and that the child had a single identity with the mother, and that's really not um, – I thought of like that in mind. There's a great book called um, The Interpersonal World of the Human Infant, 
and an excellent book. Please forgive me, I forgot who wrote it because I'm confusing it with another author. And it's a, a wonderful book about how the child is always trying to relate as a separate being at whatever primitive level. And I think one thing that parents have a hard time doing is because of our cultural conditioning and everything we've been through is doing that really hard task of letting your child be their own self and also helping them to become, to socialize them in such a way that they socialize in a healthy way, which is the sense of their, their um, individual self in relationship with other people. And then parents start, of course, modeling that relationship from day one, holding, attaching, loving. Like, it's really good to hold your kid as long as they want to be held. Mm -hmm. They'll tell you. But also uh, knowing, you know, relating to that child as an individual. Like, some parents will keep holding their kid when they start pushing away. It's like, no, it's time for them to go. They need space. So mm -hmm. respect that. Or continuing to sleep with them, you know, yeah. or... Way too long, yeah. Yeah, you know? Yeah, it's just healthy boundaries, really. You bring up such a beautiful point because I think that's the goal, right? I think the goal in life, as I think about these issues more, and I think about it also as I'm writing my book, you know, I think the goal in life is to be oneself. Yes. And I think a lot of times we... We guide it incorrectly because a lot of times we ask, or oh, who or what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. And I think about this question a lot because I think it's a really confusing question mm -hmm. because I think all you have to be is the real you. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we oftentimes develop that enough. Like all you have to be is who you are, who you already are. Like bring that out. You know, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that will never be a perfect process because yeah. this is mortality. <laughs> so, but it is possible to have a healthy boundary with your child such that they get a good sense of containment from you about, mm -hmm. you know, what they're not ready for, what's not safe, what is inappropriate behavior and a sense of um, um, boundaries. I respect your direction. Mm hmm. And a lot of that um, is nested in being the best mirror you can to validate that internal sense of who I am. And mothers, I, I think mothers start this process, um, and fathers too, they know this as well. Parents didn't know this. Oh, that's a hungry cry. Oh, that's I need to go to sleep cry. Oh, that's a oh, diaper cry. You know, and that's the child telling you what's true for them in that moment in a very mm -hmm. basic, primitive way. And then that becomes, you know, more and more derivatives evolve from that, knowing what's true for me. Yeah, because I think as a kid, you know, maybe their job is to just gather all the information, mm -hmm. you know, like the good information and the bad information. Mm -hmm. And hopefully with the right support, they learn to process it because nothing is all good. Nothing is all bad. Mm -hmm. That's you right. Know? That's exactly right. Just accept it for what it is. Right, so the parent wants to um, connect that person, their child, with their instinct mm -hmm. as well as awaken their thinking critical mind Yeah, to make, so they can make moral decisions. I mean, true moral decisions, not, um, not these picky little things, mm -hmm. but the deeper moral decision of what's truly right and truly wrong. 
And I think the thing is, as a parent, if you don't work on yourself, right, those problems don't disappear Mm -hmm. because you don't work on yourself, like Jeanette's mom, you know? But, like, I think what I wonder also is, like, considering my own experience, when you've achieved the goal that you hopefully want for your child, right, Mm -hmm. and you're not in a good place, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, like, mind-boggling or life-jolting when you think, that person may not need you anymore. And I wonder if that's like what causes or, you know, feeds those feelings of jealousy. Instead of truly being happy for someone when you're in the negative yourself as a person, your Mm. soul, you can't be happy for that person. But also that person could be in a state where they don't need you anymore and those feelings. Uh, That's a really good insight. Um, I think... Also, what you're talking about is um, we're always going to have problems. We're never going to be in a perfect space for our kids. And that helps mm-hmm. them to learn that, you know, the life is the world isn't perfect and that they can handle it not being perfect. But when you talk about someone like Jeanette's mom, who clearly, although I've been not been asked to evaluate her, does appear to have a bona fide serious mental illness related mm-hmm. to personality and so forth. And I got the impression as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's hard to um, not get that impression. But so a person who has mental illness, and, you know, there are parents who have psychotic illnesses in brain children, and, mm-hmm. and that's never good for the kid, or rarely good for the kid. But um, Because that's a trauma, too, the way yes, you live. Exactly. You know, or... But Jeanette <clears throat> and her mom, the biggest problem was because of Je- uh, Debbie's illness, she couldn't differentiate and allow her child to be standing on her own. That this is her achievement, not my achievement. Mm-hmm. This is what she thinks, not what I think. And so when you talk about, I have to let this person go, that's not conscious to the to the mother, the father, mm-hmm. whoever, but I think that's really at work because it's more differentiation. Yeah. And when you have poor boundaries because of issues in your personality or other kind of illnesses and or circumstances in life, differentiation is going to be really hard. And so enmeshment is the opposite of differentiation, you know, and there's. And would you describe differentiation as like becoming the individual then? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, in differentiation, you, you talked about the time when, when you're finally like free of your mother and you achieved her goal for you and so forth. And you were, um, away from the stimulus, you know, of mm-hmm. that kind of pressure. That's a stage of disengagement. And disengagement when you just, I got to get myself out of here. And mm-hmm. just kind of cut myself off. And some people live the rest of their lives like that. Never talk to their family again. They never do this and so forth. There's not a healthy state, but it can serve, it can be in the service of getting to the healthier state of differentiation, which is when you know the difference between yourself and other people, in particular your parents. And like, for example, even look at it the opposite thing. You can let your parents ruin their lives if yeah. that's what they're choosing to do, because that's what they're doing. But you're not doing that. There is another complicated question that, like, I decided to ask myself. But before I say that comment, I mean, you made such a beautiful point there. But this is what I wanted to add to that, too. Like, sure, you know, please. I don't want to talk too much, but, like, I'm just bringing it up because I've just been trying to make sense of it for many, many years, you know. In terms of the needing, some that's you know, I expressed to you like how I felt when I achieved my goal for my mother, or you mm-hmm. know, for, 
for myself, but it was for my mother too, right? Mm -hmm. And she was calling me things that like she didn't before, like, you know, like I'm the garbage doctor, you know, or like I'm garbage. I'm going to, everyone's going to leave me soon. Like my immediate family Mm -hmm. that I've, you know, that my children and everything, you know? And I was thinking, why would anyone say that? And I was thinking, because you achieved the goal. And I wondered about her thinking, I, I, you know, my needing her, you know, and that gave her purpose. Like I, she needed to make me feel like garbage. Yes. So that I continue to need her. It was like this desperate plea, or I could see it for the garbage talk that it is, you know? That's differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, to stand outside yeah. of the situation, no matter how messed up it is, and to look at it for what it is. And it's not about you. Yeah, it wasn't about me. No. Yeah, and, and your mother likely, I mean, could have Oh, I'm sure. That kind of <laughs> that kind of reaction because she owns your goal and so she's living vicariously. But it doesn't make her happy because it, she hers. didn't achieve she it. She didn't achieve it. Yeah. And so then she has to Make it bad so mm-hmm. she can just get rid of it. It's kind of like when, you know. And I still need mommy. Yes, right. Mommy who's, who's empty, you know. Yes, like right. So now you'll come crawling back to not be a garbage doctor. Yeah. You know, but. Or lose or give up my whole family to yeah. crawl back. Yes, right. You know, like. All right, yes, it, to put that kind of curse on you in a yeah. way. Your family's going to leave you. It's never going to work. And I, you're right. That's a beautiful way to say it. The curse was pretty soon, too. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of becoming a doctor or immediately when I got married. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even have like a ceremony because my parents were too, my family was too messed up, right? Mm-hmm. But the next day, she's like, so when you get divorce, mm-hmm. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have to hear that word immediately? Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, you know, divorce is 50%. So when you guys get a divorce, <laughs> but you know, <clears throat> but strangely, on the last comment that you had brought up, some people choose to leave the situation and never turn back. Right. But then a question that I've been wondering, fortunately or unfortunate, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, is asking myself, like, what would God do? Mm-hmm. If you believe there's a God, is it really the end? Or what would God do? Right. <laughs> and that's the phase I'm in right now. Yeah. Well, God can work with anything, so. Yeah. And God's cool. With, I would imagine God would be cool with anything. Yeah. But knowing that, I believe that there's a higher power. Yeah. You know? What would I do? What What do I choose to do knowing that there's a higher power? And that, that decision is for me. Mm-hmm. Everyone's choices could be different, you know? Right. Right. You know, I want to make a comment if this is okay to make this. Yeah. It's not a, I think it's really important to also take into consideration the variable of culture. And there are cultures who have different ways of being in relationship, being different ways of being family that might appear to be enmeshment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think we need to discern through that. Like, um, for example, the... Um, the kind of family traditions when the dad has the final word and there's kind of an authority that 
no one crosses that bridge. There's, there are ways to work with that. Mm -hmm. And then that person doesn't really feel like there's something off about that. Whereas, you know, someone who's raised in a, a more Western, probably white way, um, you know, come to think of it, you know, is going to think, that's terrible. That person should be able to make their own decisions. You can move out now. And, yeah. you know, the patriarchal, right? Yeah. We like to say. Yeah, patriarchal. Maybe they can't move out, and mm-hmm. but they're perfectly fine with it. And they know their path is evolving mm-hmm. for them. And so it's, I've learned that it's really important to be very respectful of that and not go beyond respect, which is to um, not think it's your job to upset that apple cart because it doesn't fit your, you know, your view of how things should Mm be. And to go the step beyond to value that in a context of a healthy relationship and structure and is saying that that also relates to generational differences in families in that, you know, younger people tend to become more acculturated, want to live in the culture into which they're born and so forth. And that could cause a whole bunch of classes, clashes, because we're set in our ways. I love that. And I think essentially you're saying, like, the answer is different for everyone, you know, and to each his, her, or their own. Right. You know, and, but this is something I also wonder, like, if it causes you a lot of pain, could that be more enmeshment than not, though? Well, yes, <laughs> that that's right. And also, there's um, there's a lot of a, a, abuse. I, I don't think there's mm-hmm. um, because there's power and control yeah. of one group or one person over others, and that needs to constantly be adjusted. And that's that's a hard work. That's a hard work. Mm-hmm. And then all the the behaviors, words, reactions we've internalized from our parents, like. You know, I'm not surprised that your mother would say, well, you're going to get a divorce. It's related to those psychological reasons and maybe other things, too, that are not conscious to her. Like mixed race uh, marriage can't work or what have you. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? I've, I've heard that from people, from mothers before. We're just going get to get divorced. And it's also nested in. It's like they're using a panic gun. Yeah. Like at that moment, they pick up any gun and they're like yeah. trying to shoot you. Right. And seeing if you go down. Yeah, you know? Yeah, and it's letting go of the... But they don't want to kill you. Right. But, you know... Yeah, they just want to put you back down in your place. <laughs> but it is it is about um, difference. Maybe letting go of their child, but about difference. Can I adjust to this different person? Mm-hmm. Say, it, there's, you can think of many examples. You know, like a Caucasian person bringing a person of color into the family. You know, that's would have been unheard of 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, or even less. It still is unheard of for some people. Mm -hmm. And it's the change, the difference, and the assumptions that drive that. So that's not always enmeshment, but it certainly can be. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I wonder, and I expressed to you, like, Mm -hmm. what I, the question that I'm, I'm letting drive my life, right? And I'm not saying, like, you know, the church kind of God, but like the God that I believe that exists, exists, you know, like all loving. And I ask myself, what would God do? Mm -hmm. And how I define it. Yeah. But, you know, when we look back on our situations and Jeanette as well, this is something that I wonder, do we have to forgive? And I love your background as a psychologist, as a, you know, Roman Catholic woman priest. You're so rich with experiences and thoughts and insight. 
But my question is, when we experience hurt or pain or abuse, like, do we have to forgive? Do we have to make sense of it? No. You also In order to do well, you know what I mean? Well, what I would say, the question I would ask before we, we can speculate more on forgiveness, but who are you forgiving for? Mm-hmm. Who's the person that benefits from your forgiveness? Us. You, yourself, the mm-hmm. one who forgives. Yeah. Because you let, you accept what happened, whatever wrongs happen, and you let them go. And so there's a freedom in forgiving. There, I think there's, this is going to get, we won't go too long on this, but mm-hmm. there's different levels of forgiveness too. And now some people train, they do trainings on forgiveness. You know, if you forgive, and I think what those people do, it's, um, I think they try to teach methods of finding a place of acceptance so you can forgive. But I don't think you can just think you forgive someone and really forgive. But the best thing, I think, to acknowledge as you're in a process of evolving forgiveness is, well, just acknowledge, I can't forgive this right now. And accepting that. Mm-hmm. Except I can't forgive and letting go. Like, stop obsessing. I have to forgive my mother. I have to give my father. I have to confront them. You know, that's not always safe or realistic. But it is also important to forgive yourself in the sense in any way that you might be blaming yourself. If you need forgiveness to stop blaming yourself, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. Because I think as like the memories replay in our heads, you know, sometimes we think like, I mean, sometimes like we think like, are we supposed to justify them or simply to accept Mm -hmm. and replaying the memories in my head I don't think I can really justify them. I can see the areas of pain for them, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't justify them because I was not there. However, what I could do in, in my life is I've just accepted. Yeah. You know, that's what happened. Well, that's differentiation. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's what's helped me. Yeah. Well, you're stepping step out away of it. From yeah. It. To accept it. And yeah. maybe for someone else, they need to justify it, you know, like, Maybe everyone's answers are different. Maybe some people cannot forgive. Some people can forgive and knowing that it's for themselves, you know? <clears throat> the only thing I would add to that is we're, all, we're always in a process of mutual forgiveness. You know, everything is co-created. Not, I mean, we're not, I'm not thinking of parent-child abuse or adult-child abuse. That's a whole separate category. But um, we're always forgiving and being forgiven. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd say, it's not a person can't forgive, is that we're always learning how to, which is another form of differentiation, to let go of what obsesses us so we can be free to be just in who we are. To stop, I mean, get, forgiveness really helps a person to stop grasping for a perfect solution that can't happen because those calendar days are gone. But what we're doing when we're obsessing about it, thinking about it is we're reliving the trauma. Yeah. So there is, yeah, forgiveness is part of it, but I don't think it's the goal. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting because I was listening to an interview that Jeanette uh, McCurdy had given, you uh-huh. know, and she talks about her, how her mother, she talks to her mother, you know, mm-hmm. in her head or I don't know how, you know, <laughs> but she mm-hmm. talks to her mother and she says, wow, now you actually did reach 
a level of fame, but it may not have been what you wanted. Mm-hmm. But she's still like talking with her mother, you know? Yeah. I would imagine it helps them to evolve their relationship. And I think for myself, like I think with my own living mother, I wonder if we reached a point where, you know what, we may not be able to develop this further now. Mm-hmm. But when either of us are in our higher power, mm-hmm. I think we can continue or higher place, you know? I absolutely believe that. You know, you're saying and that, that can help about... the healing too. Like I believe yeah. in more than this, you know. Yeah. I think there's right. many things we can't explain in life. Well, that's right. And you know, we as we grow in age and maturity, you really begin to see things more clearly in a more integrated fashion. That's part of it. When you mentioned Jeanette talking to her mom, I was like, Well, what did her mom say after that? Because her mom could have said something. Yeah. Which threw an imaginative voice in ourselves. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think relationships evolve mm-hmm. forever. And like if you're in your higher power or the way I imagine higher power mm-hmm. and you see it for what it is, like you're differentiated, right? Yes, I would call that. Yeah, dif- like Jeanette's mom is differentiated at this point if she's in her higher power. Well, Jeanette is differentiated yeah. from her mother because she's in her higher power too. Yeah, both she's, of them are, you yeah. know. Well, yeah, Jeanette's mom is... We're talking spiritually, theoretically, but that's how I imagine higher power, you know? Jeanette's mom is in a different dimension that is also contained in divine love. Yeah. And the the higher power is about knowing that we're contained and there's something that enfolds us. Mm -hmm. And so that we can act freely because we're safe. And that is an issue of faith. Yeah. yeah. And I only bring this up because I mentioned the letter that I told you about, my imagined letter from my mother's higher yes. power. Yes. And that really helped me so much. How lovely. To hear words from her mm-hmm. that I would otherwise not hear. Mm-hmm. Just simple, loving words. Yes. That theoretically I had to say to myself, but to know that it, if it came from her higher power, this is what she would have said to me. It had tremendous power for me. That is really key to healing because part of healing the injuries that we experience throughout life is being able to imagine and hear that something else could have been possible. Yeah, all of herself. it didn't happen. Instead of a segment of herself that she chose to live in this very limited life of hers. Right. You know, because I really fundamentally believe, you know, no one is born an asshole. You become one. (laughs) Yes. But I really believe no one is born an asshole like a serial killer is not born a serial killer there were many choices along the way yes i i believe that too um but let's not get in a discussion about mm-hmm. um pathological sociopathy sociopathy because <laughs> that does seem to come with the person at birth yeah there's tendencies certainly yeah but that doesn't have to be the infinite only way that's right you know yeah that's what I wonder. Yeah. Well, there is the realm of all possibility. Yes. Yeah. Which doesn't mean we can do everything we want, but we can take any realistic perspective we can embrace and know is true for us. Oh my gosh, Dr. Chris, I love you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for always bringing us to like another level of thinking. And I feel like your presence always does that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, not everybody thinks that, but thank you very, very much. (laughs) And how can our audience members find you? 
drfarnbach.com. Is it with a D-O-C-T-O-R or a D-R? D-R. Okay. Dr. Or just, on, just Google Christine Farnbach. Okay. And my website will come up with my information. Wonderful. You're the best. You are the best. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. If you're loving the podcast, please tell your friends. Subscribe and leave us a great review. And follow Michelle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.